This is the intersection of faith and the culture. It's Walt Bowlers. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution Coach, here with David Barton, America's premier historian and our founder at Walt Bowlers. Tim Barton, of course, national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. You can learn more about all three of us at wallbuilders.com. And also go to wallbuilderslive.com for some archives of the program. If you missed any of the recent programs, especially yesterday, because we started a three-part series with Bob McEwen speaking at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. We'll be jumping back into that later in the program today. But first, let's get our hero of history for the day. Tim, who's our hero of history today? Well, Rick, today is one of our favorite stories. Uh, for those who have followed Wall Builders or, or really heard some of our presentations, if you've heard me or my dad on the road, this is a guy we've talked about for really years. His name is Harry Hoosier, and he's really credited as being the namesake for Indiana at the Hoosier State. And, and, and it, as I'm already saying this, I know there's people out there who are skeptics and critical, and they'll say, wait a second, right? Indiana being the Hoosier state, they're not named after Harry Hoosier. As a side note, Harry Hoosier was a black evangelist uh, from the early days of the second great awakening. But people say, no, the, the Indiana did not get their name after him. In fact, if you look up online right now, where did Indiana get its name? What you will find is nobody knows that there is not a definitive source because there's not an actual footnote where Indiana said, this is where we got our name. But you can certainly look back historically and see influences. And, and even on Indiana State University or the Indiana State website, they will say some options for where the name came from. They'll say, well, back then, it's possible people had really thick accents and somebody knocks on the door and and the person would say, who's there? But maybe their accent was so thick, it sounded like who's there? And so, right, maybe that's where the word Hoosier came from, or there was an Indian word for corn named Hosey. And maybe like the derivative of it was Hosier. And so maybe Hoosier came from like this Indian word for corn, or when Indiana was a territory, uh, allegedly, like legend has it, there was a big drunken brawl. And during the brawl, somebody's ear got torn off. And so at the end of the drunken brawl, somebody sees the ear on the ground, they pick it up and say, hey, whose ear? And so maybe Hoosier came from whose ear? Or one of the other possibilities that people suggest is there was a black evangelist from the second great awakening. His, he was known as Black Harry or Black Harry Hoosier, and it, it, he's very well documented. We know he existed historically. We can point to many things that even highlight the significance of his ministry. So it's known that he was a minister. He was very influential. It is known that some of the converts under his ministry were then called Hoosiers, as if they are the followers of Harry Hoosier, the followers of his teaching. So, so those were Hoosiers, and it's documented that many of the people he influenced moved into the Indiana Territory, and they were called Hoosiers when they went to the Indiana territory. And so it's possible the name Hoosier came from those converts under Harry Hoosier. So it's possible the name came from this black evangelist. But what they'll tell you online is, but we don't really know where the name came from. Now, it's possible you might not really know where it came from, but there is only one option that makes very much sense. And that really is the, the hero we want to highlight today. So the name is Harry Hoosier. I've already kind of given away some of the story. He was an evangelist at the beginning of the Second Great Awakening, and some of his background, he was a slave in North Carolina. He was able to gain his freedom at the end of the American War for Independence, which during that era of the American Revolution, 
there were a lot of, of Americans, including founding fathers, who even talked about they had identified there was a level of hypocrisy when they were fighting for freedom for themselves while they were enslaving others. John Jay has a couple of very interesting letters about that. Those are things we actually have on the website. Or if, if you have this this PDF or this printed off pamphlet, uh, this page and a half on Harry Hoosier, we, we have one of those quotes from John Jay in there footnoted. You can go look that up and read it. But there was a, a revelation for so many Americans, they're fighting for their freedom, that slavery really is a bad institution. And if we say that today, a lot of people would, would feel skeptical that how dare you know us pretend like these guys were moral and ethical when they had slaves. And, and this is not to say slavery is not an evil institution. Of course it was. But if you're looking at a time in world history when every nation of the world had slaves, in fact, anybody who had any level of prominence, any political leaders, anybody of affluence, every one of them had slaves. This is the way the world was. And I'm saying it to point out that America, at this time of the American Revolution, America wasn't uniquely evil for having slaves. America was normal with every other nation of the world for having slaves. But America did something nobody else was doing. America's political leaders began a movement to abolish slavery, to abolish the slave trade. And this is where Harry Hoosier was able to find his freedom. He ends up being a convert in Christianity. And one of the very cool things is one of the guys he travels with early on, one of the guys he mentored or is mentored by was Francis Asbury. Now, Dad, we've talked about this a little bit off air. Rick, I, we've talked some as well. But there's the, the name Asbury might be something that people are, are recognizing a little bit today because there's a revival going on at Asbury College right now. Well, Asbury College, Asbury University, Asbury Seminary, those were named after Francis Asbury. And Dad, I've heard you talk about Francis Asbury many times. He was a, a very significant evangelist in the early days of the Second Great Awakening. Yeah, he was an evangelical evangelist, and, and I say that in the sense that evangelicals, if you look back to the 1700s, 1600s, the evangelicals would have been the Congregationalists, which is the Pilgrims and the Puritans. As you move into the late 1700s and the 1800s, the evangelicals are the Methodists. They were the circuit-riding preachers. They they preached like Whitfield did all over the place, and Whitfield was himself a Methodist. So Asbury, like Whitfield, traveled all over America preaching every group he could find. He went to every community he could think of. The guy, in his years of preaching, he preached 20,000 sermons, and he rode 300,000 miles on horseback. That's like riding a horse around the world 12 times. So these are the guys that went to everyone. Jesus talked about going out into the highways and the byways and telling everybody the gospel. These guys did it. And Harry traveled with Francis Asbury and other great Methodist leaders. He was one of those traveling preachers. Well, and what's also cool is so many of those Methodist men ministers are on a record as identifying how good Harry was as a minister. He was one of the best spoken. He was one of the most intelligent. And, and, and as we're saying this, right, this is when, when you begin to see the influence that Harry Hoosier had, it actually didn't make sense that as people are converting under his ministry and, and some of these bishops he traveled with, they would talk about that Harry would draw larger crowds than they would. Well, Harry has these huge crowds. These people are converting to Christianity. They, they're following the teachings of Harry Hoosier on the Bible. They moved to Indiana this is the only thing that actually makes sense. And even though I get there's there's no definitive proof of this, it is what makes the most sense. But what is unquestionable is one of the incredible pastors, ministers in the early days of the Second Great Awakening was a black minister named Harry Hoosier. To find out more, you need to go to wallbuilders.com. Learn more of this guy, such a unique minister from American history. 
All right, folks, quick break. We'll be right back with Bob McEwen speaking at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. You are listening to Wall Builders. This is Tim Barton from Wall Builders with another moment from American history. America is a special and unique nation. The average length for a constitution in other countries is only 17 years, but we've had ours for over two centuries. And our 4% of the world's population produces 24% of the world's gross domestic product. And every year we produce more inventions and technology than the other 96% of the world combined. In 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville of France came to America, traveled the country, and in his famous book, Democracy in America, reported, the position of the Americans is therefore quite exceptional. And it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one. This is the origin of the phrase American exceptionalism and affirms that America is unique because of the distinctive ideas on which we have been based, including inalienable rights, individualism, limited government, and the importance of religion and morality. For more information about American exceptionalism, go to wallbuilders.com. Welcome back to Wall Builders. We're going to dive back in where we left off yesterday at the end of the program. We were right in the middle of Bob McEwen's presentation at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. We're just going to jump right back in right now and get uh, most of that today. And then the final uh, close on that presentation will be tomorrow. So it's a three-part series here on Wobblers Live. This presentation, Bob McEwen speaking at the Pro Family Legislators Conference just a few months back. Here's Bob. Any politician who will not protect life will not hesitate to take your liberty. And so it's the first thing is easily you can ask, and Dennis Prager says, if you only ask a person two questions, ask them where do they stand on life, then you know how they stand on domestic policy. Ask them where they stand on Israel, and you know where they stand on foreign policy. Just from So Donald Trump, so, so I was at a dinner table with him when he, he, he turned to Leonard Leo, who was doing the research, and he said, uh, you know, how are we coming on those? He said, well, we got 40 more names to, to come ready for you for next week. He said, well, stay on them, stay on And I thought, he, he has set out his criteria. He wanted them to be pro-life. Now, if they're pro-life, then 90% of this other thing is going to take care of itself. And then when he actually appointed them to the Supreme Court and the ramifications that we've seen in one decision, that lemon decision. I went to the University of Miami, which was overwhelmingly Jewish at the time. And at Christmas time, all of my friends, where other than celebrate uh, Christmas, they would get contracts with New York law firms. So they would drive throughout the South and they would take pictures of little towns that have keep Christ in Christmas or whatever. And they would then send it back to the law firm in New York. New York would then send a, a letter threatening this little city councilman making $50 a week, that charging him with $5 million lawsuit. And we just collapsed all of those things all during the 70s. And we just gave them away. And it wasn't until Alliance Defense Fund was the first one formed in 93. And now we have these other folks that began to push back a little bit. And now we understand that all of that stuff that we gave away, we can now have back again. This is the reason. There's, if you ever want to get too discouraged, try to find a Planned Parenthood convention. And if you will just go and sit in the back of a Planned Parenthood convention, you will be so excited because they, those Christians are winning everything. They're winning everything on the courts. They're taking over the city councils. They're taking over school boards. They're, and, and you'll be much encouraged because the truth of the matter is we are making tremendous, tremendous headways. Three more examples of where the country was dependent upon people such as you and I and where it came through. Tim mentioned about, about Delaware. Uh, as, as you know, when, when they were, were crossing the Delaware, uh, they were within days, within a week. The, the enlistments were up 
in January 1st. And that's when, that's when George Washington's friend, uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, came down and said, you know, you've got to have a success, otherwise this thing. And George Washington had already written a letter to his cousin at Mount Vernon. He said, I fear this thing is about up. Now, if, you're, if you have no country and no money and no arms, and you're fighting the strongest power on earth, you would have reason to be discouraged. But, uh, but they didn't. And as you know, they relied upon the Lord and went down and had that great victory, which inspired them. We can continue on to the War of 1812. Well, first of all, let's talk about what happened immediately thereafter. That is that the Muslims, who the Barbary pirates said, well, they would attack ships in the way that you, you kept them from cutting your heads off, was that you gave them money. And so the British would give them money in order to bribe them to, and, and function that way. But when the United States became independent, the Muslim murderers discovered that these folks are no longer protected by the tribute that we're getting from, from the British. And so they decided to attack America and begin to attack our ships. We didn't have any, any defense for that. And so uh, they went out and bought three ships and started, started a, a navy. But the interesting thing about that was that Barack Obama, in his first speech abroad, in which he went to Cairo to speak to the radical Muslim Brotherhood in Cairo, in the course of it, when he talked about all the great accomplishments of the Muslim faith, he said, in fact, it was the Muslims that first recognized the independence of the United States. And you go back and you can watch the speech and everybody laughs because they knew what he was saying. When they recognized America's independence because they went out and killed Americans is what they did. They attacked the ships. And we had to spend a lot of money to them. And a third of the budget under John Adams was going to, to try to bribe them. And that's when Thomas Jefferson said, came in. They said, millions for defense, not a dime for tribute. And we went ahead and went to war. And we went to, they, they captured the Philadelphia. We went to, to retrieve it. And what, ha- what do Muslims do when you, when you fight them? They cut your head off, as you know. They're big into doing that. And so the, the soldiers took the straps off of the ship and wrapped them around their necks. And uh, the first battle of, of the Marines, and they're called Leathernecks to this day because they were going to have, they were protecting the leather on their necks and from the halls of Montezuma, in which we won. Shortly thereafter, the British are having a battle with France. And what do you do? And this is my point. What do you do when you're the strongest nation on earth? You do anything you want. And so Britain wanted more ships and they wanted more sailors. So what they do? They went out and took them. But there happened to be seven and a half million people called themselves Americans, and they didn't like that. And so America declared war, and uh, the British said, this shouldn't be a whole lot of a problem. And so they came, as you know, they sailed up the Potomac, and James Madison, his wife, Dolly, the first lady to ever be called the first lady, was preparing lunch for the last president to command troops in the field. And when a messenger came running in and told Dolly that, President Madison was not coming to lunch, but the British were. And uh, with that, they grabbed the picture of George Washington off the wall, a picture of herself, and a uh, silver tea set left over from John and Abigail Adams. They grabbed him and ran out the door, and the British came in the back door, ate the lunch, and then uh, that evening set the entire city, including beginning with the White House, and burned everything to the ground. We have no archives prior to that time. All the sh- We used to when a, a bill was enrolled, it was tied with a red ribbon uh, from, from which we get the term red tape. So all of those things were all burned. The Library of Congress was burned. The only thing that was left were four stone walls of the White House 
and four stone walls of the Capitol. Everything else was destroyed. Now, having done that, now we've wiped out the government. The next thing is the fact that the left, that there's an army left, a little army. It's up there in Baltimore, the fourth largest harbor and, and the largest military port. We're going to take that out. And when, that, when we do that, then there will be no United States of America. And so they marched up from up through uh, Upper Marlboro and Americans, not soldiers or sailors, just God-fearing, freedom-loving Americans came out to communicate to them their disaffection for their marching through their town. And rather than kill them all, they just, uh, Army always uses, needs a, a medic, and so they stole their doctor, Dr. Bean, and they went out to prepare in order to attack the fort that was protecting Baltimore, Fort McHenry. The commander, who uh, at age 29 knew that if they were going to have a success, they'd have to come through him. And so Mr. Armistead, the grandfather of the soldier in, in, at Gettysburg, he went out and purchased a flag. There were 15 states, so there were 15 stripes. Uh, and each stripe was two feet. That makes 30 feet high and 42 feet long and two foot uh, stars. And he purchased it in anticipation of the fact when the battle would come to them. Well, the people of Upper Marlboro wanted to have their doctor back, so they went down and hired a, a lawyer by the name of Francis Scott Key, who was living in a little house there where the Key Bridge is now in Georgetown, with he and his 14 children. And they, they, they said, uh, I'll, I'll take the case as best we can. So they went out to where James and Dolly Madison were living out in Virginia, and they said they'd already written a law that said that you can't negotiate with individuals. And so he said, you take Colonel Skinner here, and good luck. And so they rode out to the, in the, the Tonnet, the command ship there in, in Baltimore, and said, we'd like to have our doctor back. And after a day of negotiations, finally, the commander said, fine, you can have him. And quite frankly, we don't care, because tomorrow, you're not going to have a country anyway. So you get to sit here and watch, and then after that, you all can do whatever you want to do. And so with that, they began to attack. And uh, here's the significant point. Hi, right, friends. One more break today. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Bob McEwen on Wall Builders. Hey, this is Tim Barton with Wall Builders. And as you've had the opportunity to listen to Wall Builders Live, you've probably heard the wealth of information about our nation, about our spiritual heritage, about the religious liberties, about all the things that makes America exceptional. And you might be thinking, as incredible as this information is, I wish there was a way that I could get one of the Wall Builders guys to come to my area and share with my group, whether it be a church, whether it be a Christian school or public school or some political event or activity. If you're interested in having a Wall Builder speaker come to your area, you can get on our website at www.wallbuilders.com and there's a tab for scheduling. And if you'll click on that tab, you'll notice there's a list of information from speakers' bios to events that are already going on. And there's a section where you can request an event to bring this information about who we are, where we came from, our religious liberties and freedoms. Go to the Wall Builders website and bring a speaker to your area. Welcome back to Wall Builders. We're going to jump right back in with Congressman McEwen over at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. Who were the people that were keeping this country to, so that we could be here tonight? Just plain, godly men who loved freedom, who took 22 of their own ships and sunk them in the entrance to the harbor so that the British couldn't enter. 
And they had to use this new thing called a concrete. A Mr. Concrete had invented a rocket that had a timer on it. It was supposed to land and explode, but sometimes the timers weren't all that good. And so as, as they were attacked all through the night, it was very distressing as Dr. Bean, Colonel Skinner, and Francis Scott Key stood there and watched this attack and the flag that had been prepared by the colonel run up there and they could watch it and they could see that it was surviving. But then suddenly about 1.30 at night, everything went quiet and they weren't sure exactly what had happened. He began to write, oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we had hailed at the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. But the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home? He doesn't know if he's got a country or not, but what happened was that we all know that you can't go to war without the Navy. You can't get the men and material and supplies there. And then uh, we used to use artillery to prepare the battlefield. We don't do that anymore. We use the Air Force to prepare the battlefield. But then for thousands of years, there comes a time when you've got to put one foot in front of the other and take the land. And that's what the Army does. And so sure enough, at 1.30 in the morning, the Army landed and began to go up through the bulrushes up to attack this, the city. And those same Americans, not a commander of anyone, just because they loved God and loved America, went out and laid in the weeds and when they began the land assault, the assault was so aggressive that eventually they had done, they had to renege and withdraw, and the battle was won. So the Americans could then row into the Queen Anne Hotel and write it four additional verses, the last one being this, Oh, thus be it ever that free men shall stand between their loved homes and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may this heaven-rescued land praise the power that is made preserved as a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just. Let this be our motto. In God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph will wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. And so that country went on to continue to be a hope for the entire world. One additional example is that came a time in which it almost disappeared again. It was July 2nd, 1863. They had a second day of the war, of the battle at, at Gettysburg, in which a whole series of, of different corps and, and battalions had bumped into each other. And at the start of the, of the second day of the battle, it became apparent that the, the Federals were up on Cemetery Ridge, and being on the high ground is a good thing, unless you get surrounded, and that's not a good thing. And so they, they told the poor 20th Maine, fellows that had just started out at the beginning of the summer, with a thousand, and they were started out that day at 600, and now down to 300. And a fellow, a school teacher by the name of Joshua Chamberlain, he and his brother, and actually his two brothers, he was talking, had been given the assignment that if this 17th and, and 47th Alabama gets around us, if they come through you and around you, and then they have them surrounded on the hill, we will lose this battle. And just quite frankly, just to remind you of the circumstances is that's what the commanders of the northern forces for the first year and a half wanted. They wanted a stalemate. They wanted an agreement that there would be two countries, north and south. The south didn't want to occupy the north. 
And, and shortly thereafter, what was called the Gettysburg Riots, a week after Gettysburg, there were riots in which 1,200 people were injured and 300 people died in the riots of New York City because the place was getting fed up with this war because the heads, uh, poor old McClellan, who was a Democrat and ran against ran against Lincoln for president in 1864, but he was the commander for the first year and a half, and he never wanted to actually win. What he wanted to have was a stalemate. And what was apparent was that if they got defeated at Gettysburg, there is no question but what that would have been uh, suing for peace. And what would have happened? There would only been there would have been a north and a south. That means west of the Mississippi would have been a third country. There would have been no United States of America if they could get through that 20th Maine. And after three attempts, they were now down to virtually nothing. Colonel Chamberlain turns to his brother. He says, "Where's Tommy?" He said, "With the three of us, three brothers." He said, "With the three of us here, this can be a bad day for mother." And what they said, well, let, let's, they're coming again. Let's take the, uh, uh, we're out of ammunition. He said, take ammunition and guns from the wounded and, and the dead. He said, we did that last time. We have nothing. And here they come. And if they do it, America will cease to exist. And one man made one decision. He said, we can't let them come through us. So what are you going to do? He said, two words. Fix bayonets. And so they looked at each other and, all right, and they slammed those bayonets and they let out a war hoop that said, just like the rebel yell, we can do this too. And they yelled out a roar and went tearing down the hill and they turned and ran and America was saved. This nation has looked for leaders time after time after time and God has blessed them. And those people were looking for something that maybe what they weren't sure was going to exist. But in our case, we can look over our shoulder and say, this is wonderful. This is, poor George Washington had to sell a dream. And, and, and Thomas Jefferson wasn't sure whether or not we could have the strongest military in the world when he ordered three frigates to make the entire United States Navy. But we know what America stands for. But as I said, America was not the leading nation of the world. Through my study of history, no nation has ever become the leading nation on earth, but what it didn't pursue it and knew what it had to do to get there. It was the single exception of the United States after World War II. And how did that happen? Well, it happens because the leader of the free world for 250 years were the British. After World War I, when they got a little bit sore and tired of it uh, in the 1930s, they decided they weren't going to leave. All right, folks, got to interrupt right here because we're out of time for today. Be sure and visit our website today at wallbuilders.com. And then if you missed yesterday's program or maybe you tuned in in the middle of today's program, in the archive section of wallbuilderslive.com, you can get yesterday's uh, presentation with Bob McEwen. So it's a three-part series, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And tomorrow we'll get the conclusion. Sure appreciate you listening. You've been listening to Wall Builders.